Ladies and gentlemen, before we begin, quick shout out to our friends over at the Under Discussion podcast. You can find them at undergopher.com. That's G-O-P-H-E-R. They're a table games podcast. If you like table games, these are the guys to listen to. If you don't like table games, don't worry. They do episodes talking about movies too. They talk about sci-fi, RPGs, all that stuff. They're funny guys. They're fun to listen to. You'll have a blast. Once again, Under Discussion Podcast. Check them out at undergopher.com. Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is John D'Amico and Jenna Ipcar. Our topic today is the year 1977 in film. Everybody knows it for Star Wars, Close Encounters. Those are the big ones, but there's a lot of great stuff that came out that year. A lot of ones you should check out, as well as ones you probably didn't even realize came out in 77. I'm going to kick it over to John D'Amico. School some people. This is uh, this one's sort of a pet project of mine. This is something I've wanted to do for a while uh, with a lot of years. I like the idea of sort of just going through a year in film as just sort of a matter of excavation, because I think when you approach it that way, you find a lot of stuff that you didn't even know to look for. But uh, the reason I thought we should pick 77 for the first one is that 1977 is remembered as the year that New Hollywood ended because Star Wars happened. It's remembered as the, the, the year that the blockbuster model really, which started to come into play in 75 with Jaws, but it really, it, it's remembered as the year that the blockbuster model overtook the new Hollywood model of filmmaking, which is not 100% true, but it's a pretty good you know, baseline and it's a pretty good sort of line in the sand point. And I think it's sort of an interesting year because it's so overwhelmed by this one film, Star Wars, which is a great film and there's a ton to talk about it with it, but there's just such an extraordinary wealth of other films that year that either portended the beginnings of something that would be a major player on the scene in the years to come, or sort of showed the end of something. Like, for example, when I was writing for Shot Context, I did a piece a couple years ago comparing two movies from 1977, Ridley Scott's The Duelists and Louis Buñuel's That Obscure Object of Desire. Uh, you can go find the piece. I don't want to rehash it too much because there's a lot to talk about. But essentially what, what they are is they're two stories about obsession that, that channels itself in two completely different ways, one told by Ridley Scott, who was about to become one of the most important filmmakers in the world. It was his first feature film, his first film to get any kind of audience, and it was his first film right before Alien, which began his sort of, you know, murderer's row run. And that obscure object of desire was Buñuel, who was such a major figure from the, the 30s to, to the 70s in, in influencing how kind of the, the fringes of filmmaking looked. It was his last movie. So you had these sort of, this young rising talent and this old fading talent both taking the same theme in the same year, which I think is an interesting thing and an interesting place to begin looking at a year. So essentially what I was hoping we would talk about is, in a broad sense, 1977, the legacies of the movie from that year. And to begin with, I guess we should talk about Star Wars, right? Yeah, Star Wars, I have a list right here. That was the top grossing film of the year. that made. 307 million and then number two is like 128 which is Smokey and Bandit so then from like the third fourth fifth on it's like 
hovering around 100 and then it just kind of drops off. But Star Wars was like so far ahead of two and three and four and five on that list. I mean, just that mammoth cloud of Star Wars kind of took that year and that's 77. And Smokey and the Bandit, I mean, we were just talking about this right before the podcast started, about we could even do a whole episode on Smokey and the Bandit. I know, John, you really love it. I was telling the two of them a story earlier that um, my family used to share a Netflix account so everybody could see what I was watching. And my mom once gave me shit for a couple years because she saw that I watched Smokey and the Bandit six times in one month. They put it on Netflix. (laughs) You know, I almost want to say it's shameful, but it's beautiful because that movie is fantastic. And I I never saw it as a kid. It wasn't, this isn't like a nostalgia thing for me. I saw it fairly recently, but man, what a great freaking movie. I mean, I guess the story behind it was just that they wanted to make like a really low budget sort of B stunt movie with Jerry Reed. And then I guess Burt Reynolds found out about it, decided to show up. And then suddenly it was like a $10 million film or something. It like the the budget blew up and yet they kept (laughs) this total like B movie plot with like a real just sort of very simple, you know, characters like, you know, plot, everything and, and like premise. And it's awesome. It's just so great. It's so happy. It has a song that just narrates the movie continuously. And, uh, you know, everyone wears jeans. Yeah. And it has that great 70s into the 80s style of action where I guess cars maybe were just cheaper back then. So they were a little more cavalier about just slamming them into each other oh, yeah. and into stuff. Which is always better. That's what you want to see, man. Yeah. There's just, you know, it's like the Blues Brothers kind of action. And Hal Needham, who directed Smoking the Bandit, was like the best in the world at that. Because he was a stuntman before he was a director. Right. And it really like reads like a stuntman's movie, which I love because I'm very immature. But <laughs> it's, yeah, Smokey and the Bandit's a tremendous movie. In terms of legacy, would, would we say Smokey and the Bandit has a legacy? There are a bunch of like very like Southern centric or as my friend would call it, Hicksploitation movies and from the 70s though. So maybe it kind of does. Yeah. I mean, Hicksploitation was already sort of there. But I feel like Smokey and the Bandit was the, the first time that it, it kind of extended past, you know, the parameters of the regions that it was. Right. It was, it was a crossover. Yeah. yeah, it was. And um, as we're all fans of local filmmaking, there you I go. Think there is something kind of beautiful <laughs> about, you know, it's like if, if Spider Baby was just a huge. Yeah. The hit. number two film of a year being that <laughs> local film is pretty incredible. Yeah. The number and the, two film. Yeah. Because the boys are thirsty in Atlanta and there's beer in Texarkana. Yeah. If it wasn't for Star Wars, that would probably have been the top grossing movie of the year. Star Wars was like 300. This was 128. And then the next one was like 116. Next one was Close Encounters. Smoking and Bandit would have been top grossing for 77. Which makes sense. It's a fun, quick action movie. And Country was really in at the time. There's something to be said for Smokey and the Bandit. The number three you said was Close Encounters? Yeah. They thought it was going to be number one. Do you know the story with Close Encounters and Star Wars and the the box office predictions? When Star Wars was in test screenings, nobody thought it was going to make any money because the effects work hadn't been finished yet. And it was just sort of like half a movie that they were watching. The only person who ever sat in on the test screenings who had confidence in the movie was Spielberg. Spielberg was working on his follow-up to Jaws, which was what Star Wars was two years before Star Wars. I mean, Jaws was the lines around the block movie right before it. So the the story goes, Spielberg and Lucas made a bet and exchanged a point of uh, the box office for each of their movies. So George Lucas gave up one of his points and took one of Spielberg's points on uh, Close Encounters. 
And Spielberg gave up one of his Close Encounters points and took a point on Star Wars instead, which is like the best bet anybody could have made because Star oh, Wars yeah. is now like a $4 billion company or whatever. And Spielberg just still sees money on that. Incredible. Oh, nice. <laughs> but Close Encounters is an interesting one to me because as much as I love others from him more, I don't think there's a more Spielberg-y movie than Close Encounters. Yeah, I feel that. It has that very like sort of grandiose Spielberg feeling it, that it, that kind of keeps with the rest of his films very clearly that, you know, I don't know. Yeah, it's like magic and optimism and also sort of like the melancholy yeah. of a- It's almost like a thesis film. It's almost like uh, how Synecdoche is kind of the most Kaufman one. Yeah. That's almost like his Synecdoche. It's like a totality of um, these little themes. Because you know what it is? Spielberg's big thing, I think, in general is that in all of his movies, the the scope and coldness of the universe at large becomes to him like a source of intimacy, not of- you know, for, for Kubrick, that becomes a, a source of kind of cosmic coldness. Whereas for Spielberg, it's sort of a chance to like snuggle up. You know, all of his movies feel like a couple of people like around a campfire in the middle of the woods. Right. Or like, you know, like in a cabin during a blizzard. There's this sense of something small and intimate and kind of warm happening in the middle of something incomprehensibly vast and cold. That's beautiful, John. <laughs> it's, I mean, it, it's, I think why that's his actually, movies- I'd see, That's actually, I think, dead on. Yeah, you yeah, got I, it. Yeah, I think it's why all of his movies really click with people in this right. sort of way you can't even express. I remember I saw, I guess it was, a, you know, one of those PBS things where it was going through like all Spielberg's films and him talking about them. And uh, he said that, I mean, this, this was probably like 2005 or something. He said that if he had done Close Encounters- as the man he is now and the man grown up and with a family and everything, he would have changed the ending to yeah, the opposite that. ending. Yeah, he would not have he wouldn't have left his family at the end. Yeah. That's the big regret he has about that movie, is that he just he he doesn't relate to that at all anymore. Whereas when he made the film, he really related to the choice the character made. Yeah, he was I mean, was he even thirty yet at that time? He was, he was barely. I mean he was a yeah, very young probably man. Probably barely. Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting. It's it's a war movie, but then at the same time, there's this sort of central betrayal at the heart of it. Mm. And he, he doesn't shy away from that. I mean, you really see the fallout in Terry Gar's face and everything all through that movie. I, I really love Close Encounters. I mean, in the cold light of day, it's probably a little long. It, it has its faults. I mean, like... There's some scenes I feel like I could have done without. But I, yeah, I like the message. I like the sort of... I love the that tone... I actually yeah. always think of my father. It was a cell phone ring for the longest <laughs> time, but you know, like, but it is. It's it's very iconic. You know, the, yeah. the whole movie has this very like iconic, and it does have that and nice that, optimistic. I mean, that's cinematography, also. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's a beautiful. It's movie. just incredible camera work. Didn't that have a reputation as far as being a really loud movie for it's a long time? The loudest movie ever made. Yeah, which is a huge problem for it. I don't know if they fixed it on the Blu-ray, but the DVD was almost unwatchable because there was so much dynamic range in the noise. Right. It was like the ultimate example of a DVD that you had to just keep changing the volume every oh, two Oh, that minutes. was the worst for a time period with DVDs. Is yeah. That sometimes they would come out and the score track is so yeah. fucking loud. The dialogue is so low because they're playing around with like what's going to sound good on your sound systems and everything. Yeah. And they just didn't nail it for a time. Well, there was no attempt, I think. Uh, Road Warrior had the same problem. There's no attempt on either of those to make a mix for like a normal TV. It was all these prestige mixes because they were prestige movies and it really didn't turn out well. I have a friend, Patty, who I think in theory, Close Encounters would probably be like his favorite movie. You know, it's like everything he likes. 
but um, he only saw that DVD of it, and you can't get into that. I remember there would always be a better mix, like if you watch something on HBO or Cinemax, yeah. they would have a better audio mix than if you would just watch the DVD. So a lot of the times there would be movies where like I saw them on TV and I was like, I fucking love this. And then I you know, get the DVD and I can't ever watch the DVD because the, the audio mix is just yeah. fucked for And TV. years later you find out with a lot of them, the trick is to just put on the mono mix, but right. you, know, you shouldn't have to need a guidebook to make the movie yeah, sound Yeah, it good. should be pretty intuitive. Especially that movie was, I mean, it's its not Star Wars, but it was such a big hit for them, and it, it's so enduring, you'd think they would put in the effort with right. it. What's the rest of these movies? I want to see the hear the rest of the top ten, because I always like hearing, I mean, that's what's interesting to me about, like, taking a year and dissecting it. Yeah. Is that you get to see just what the, like, what came up with what and compare. Just uh, There's actually a great DVD rental place left in Bowdoin, Maine, called Barton Gregg's DVD Explosion, which is like the best place. <laughs> That's a great name, Sh- too. Shout out to, yeah. They do this great thing where they just have a wall. They'll pick a different year, and they'll just put up DVDs that all came out in the same year. And I always found it so fascinating to be like, no shit, like fucking Smokey yeah, and the Bandit and Star Wars. Like what? Like, you know, it's just sort of stuff like that. So yeah, what were the other top 10? Well, for our top three, just to reiterate, Star Wars, then Smokey, then Close Encounters. All three kind of like dusty movies in parts. When you think about it, yeah, definitely. Dust is Do kind a of favor. a theme. I, I have a, I have a theory right now. Can you pull up the top ten of '76? I'm assuming number one is Rocky. The thing about a year is you can kind of take the pulse of the population, and it feels like if there's this conception that the '70s were the time for kind of dark, you know, brooding self hatred cinema, and the '80s were the time for sort of bubbly pop cinema, it feels like '77 might be the the linchpin year. 76 is pretty interesting. I just pulled that up now. Number one, yes, of course, Rocky. That grossed 117. Then number two, this is kind of an oddball one, is a film called To Fly, which is a National Air and Space Museum IMAX film. And it grossed $88 million. (laughs) And this was just like a museum film, essentially. That's amazing. I've never heard of that film before. Have you heard of it? No. Yeah, it's a documentary film. I didn't even know they did IMAX in 76. Yeah, it's about hot air balloons and shit. That was the number two of 76. What else we got? Because I feel like there's got to be some dark ones hiding in there. Number three is A Star is Born. Number four, All the President's Men. There we go. That's a big... Number five is The Omen. In Search of Noah's Ark is six. King Kong Remake is seven. And Silver Streak, The Enforcer, and then Midway. What I'm thinking is because, you know, 76 was the taxi driver year. It was All the President's Men. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it feels like particularly 75 was such a, you know, cosmically dark year. It feels like he's starting to see this... You know, the further they get from Watergate in Vietnam. Yeah. So what's 77? What was the, what were the other ones? Are they all bubbly? Before we go to a quick thing about 76, that's when Rocky Horror officially became a midnight movie. That's when it was re-released. So that's, really? that's a pretty interesting one. All right. So 77, number four is Goodbye Girl. Five is Saturday Night Fever. Then we have Oh God at six. Then A Bridge Too Far, Spy Who Loved Me. And then number 10 is Annie Hall. Saturday Night Fever is probably the darkest one, and I'll bet if you took a quick poll, people would think it's the most bubbly. Oh yeah, that yeah, I was that you is know, a I dark was, movie. That's yeah. like one of those movies that was taken over by the hype or the fans, or I don't know and what. And its own sequel, it had the same problem Rocky did. Uh, it was taken over by one scene in the movie. I think is when yeah. he, when yeah. he busted out on the dance floor. 
People just think that that's the movie. Yeah. Which is so far from the truth because I avoided that film for so long. I think actually I almost was sort of forced to watch it because I like, I think I came home drunk one night and it was on TV and I was like, screw it. Like, this is what I'm watching. And it was so good that I was like up until like, you know, four in the morning watching it. And and it was mostly because, yeah, like I just did avoid it. Like I, everyone, it just sounded terrible. But then you watch it and it's like, damn, this is like a deep, like well acted, well shot, well thought out. And a local film. Local, exactly. Yeah, Bay it's Ridge. All Bay Ridge. Yeah. My mom lived there when they were filming it. I think I said this on another uh, on another episode, but she her she had a friend who had the exact same job, the paint mixer in the hardware store where Travolta is the paint mixer. That's in the awesome. Movie. That's great. Yeah. yeah, Saturday Night Fever. That's a hell of a one. There's this one part in it that always sticks out that like I hate though, which is there's some really bad fucking ADR and like a couple scenes in that movie and like shitty editing where they were trying to like fix lines, I guess. Which is when um, the young kid is talking to the priest at the um, at the dance place and he's talking about getting like an abortion and stuff. And if you watch like the mouth movements in that one scene where they're talking to each other, it's like there's lines of dialogue where somebody said something completely different and then they layered dialogue over it just as though they were saying what they were saying and like the cross cutting's really bad. So there's that one part, it's almost like in Carrie, there's like that shitty part where they're trying on clothes, the two guys, and then it goes into like fast forward speed and it's like, the only thing wrong with Carrie, like I think uh, yeah. Pauline Kael said that like that was the only possible thing you could change about that movie Carrie. Otherwise, it's like a perfect film. Like Saturday Night Fever, that's that scene in that where it's just like so grating and weird. And they could have just cut it out, I guess. But I guess it might have been too uh, expository. That's a frustrating movie because it is absolutely sabotaged by its own memory. Yeah. You know, it's such a weird thing that happens to a lot of movies. Well, disco itself is sabotaged by its own memory. I mean, you yeah. take, take a film like Last Days of Disco. So many people don't realize what disco was. And that movie basically explains disco and why disco is awesome and why disco is this great thing and why it's a fucking depressing thing that it went away. I mean, right in that movie, they cut to the actual footage of like the disco sucks burning at the baseball stadium and how how fueled the hatred of disco was by homophobia and racism right. and sexism. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I remember reading that David Byrne actually had come out saying, you know, that but talking about, yeah, how disco gets such a bad rap because it was such a gay and black scene. Yeah. And it was like... And very pro-women ex- Yeah, exactly. That's such bullshit. They're great music, man. Well, yeah. it's interesting... I mean, I I can't fucking listen to disco. It's just like not even like I the more soul fueled like R and B stuff. That stuff's fine, and I mean, there, there's some of it that's all right, and some of it works in the context of other things. You know, like it, it, if the movie's right, it, it works. But I think part of the reason I respond to Saturday Night Fever so well is that it's the only one that really taps into just like the desperation of that genre. Mm. You know, that that sort of. If if we assume that it's sort of a, a feminist and um, homosexual movement and and all that 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 was a really hard time for women and for gay men and for black men and I think disco underneath that veneer which is the same for most pop music of any era underneath the the, the sort of veneer of it, it it really taps into the kind of heartbreak that leads to the the sort of facade and I think Saturday Night Fever is the only movie that I know of that really nails that about not just disco, but about pop music. Mm. The sort of heartbreak that's just buried right in the core of it. Or like Paris is burning, but that's a little different. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would say I would say Last Days of Disco would be the only one I can think of. Because, I mean, but that's, you know, that's basically the thesis of that one. Yeah. I mean, Saturday Night Fever does it in a way that it doesn't really call attention to itself about it, which which sort of impresses me. But yeah, I I think that's a beautiful movie. That's one of my favorites of the year. And in, in the legacy discussion, that one's sort of a heartbreaker because that one is robbed of the legacy that it deserves. So moving down that top 10 list, and then we will, you know, abandon that, start going into the deep cuts. But I guess the other one we would want to talk about on that list would be uh, Annie Hall. Well, I want to talk real briefly about Oh God. Oh, you do? Really? Yeah. You know why? All because right. I really like Carl Reiner, and I'm a major Dick Van Dyke fan. Lately, I've been marathoning it in my old age. It was, again, not a nostalgia choice. Your old age? Yes, in my old age. It's a good show. It's so great. Oh, my God. It's so consistently fantastic. I cannot tell enough people to watch Dick Van Dyke. Anything with Mary Tyler Moore in, people should watch. Yeah, agreed. And I know I'm the last person on Earth who hasn't watched all of Dick Van Dyke, but I'm going to go ahead and recommend it. How far are you along into it right now? Season two. But those How seasons, many seasons are there's They're mad long. And it, it's, yeah, it's like, like 100 billion episodes. Yeah, exactly. How many seasons are there? Eight, you said? Eight or seven or something. So that's like 5,000 episodes. Yeah, it's going to be the next 10 years of yeah. my life. But, <laughs> oh God. I mean, I guess they remade it as like basically Bruce Almighty and all these things. I haven't seen that. But like, you, you know, it's the same sort of premise. The guy gets chosen for God to come down. And it's like, hey, spread the word. And like, I kind of like parts of Oh God, but for the most part, it was just too sort of schmaltzy oh, man. and I had precious oh God. for me. I had Oh God and the Gods Must Be Crazy mixed up this entire time. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Because once you started talking about George Burns or whatever, I was like, that can't be right. All right. I'm, I'm on the page now. I'm yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I just basically that like, I, I don't know, like Carl Reiner. Another Terry Gar movie, by the way. So Terry Gar in that and Close Encounters. She was hmm. a box office champ that year. You wouldn't have known. Yeah. Go on though, Jenna. Oh, I don't know. Basically that just like, I don't know. I feel like he kind of dropped the ball. It could have, it should have been funnier. It should have been, but it's very preachy. It's like Carl Reiner really takes it very seriously and you can tell. And part of that's okay because his God is sort of this really nice, benevolent and like very open God. You know, he, his message is basically like, Hey, look, no religion is right, but you should believe in me. And like, but you know, like, it's we're, we're chill, like whatever. Like he's that kind of God. Yeah. And I can get behind. He's like also like kind of an old vaudeville retiree, you know, which is like, great. Yeah. All right. If he's going to be a God, it may as well be that guy. But I don't know. It's like kind of a, I, I can understand why he made it. And I feel like he kind of made it just to like try and convert other people to his version of God. I don't know if it was that proselytizing. I mean, it was kind of, you know, it's something like, even if you didn't, believe in god you could sort of like watch it like it wasn't like something groundhog day yeah oh, it, sure it wouldn't like turn you it. away no it didn't turn me away i just like i wanted it to be funnier i was like he has it in him yeah that's understandable but it's was... like there's a lot of like everyone love each other and i'm like i got it yeah <laughs> john, gonna... Den john denver's pretty likable man. i love john denver i was gonna launch into this thing about how is the only movie shot in botswana but it's just not <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely the other one so, oh God, there was there was that one. There was oh God two. There was book the, two, isn't it? Yeah, called? book two. The one that I really love, which everybody hates and is like notoriously bad, is oh God, you devil, which is the one where he plays God and the devil. And like that sounds he, like it could be a Godard title, <laughs> <laughs> like a Bresson title yeah, or something. Yeah. So it's him and you know it's George Burns playing both God and the devil, and he's like helping this like wannabe rock musician. And I love these kind of like fake like pop hits in movies. That's one of my favorite like things like with like that thing you do where it's like the fake pop hit, but it's like an actual pop hit or something. That's such a good song. It's always, yeah, <laughs> it's a fantastic song, but I always love to see like the misses too. 
where like they have to manufacture this idea of this music that's awesome in order to like sell the character and sell the yeah. plot. That's and really like, that's such a hard. I think and maybe when, yeah. almost famous is the only one to really get like it's a song tough, that sounds yeah. so right for that time and Ro- everything. I think Rockstar did a pretty good job of it too. I never saw that one. But um, it it's so interesting to see like the failures of it, and oh god, you devil, you see the failure of it. But it just it almost adds to the alternate reality feel of it, and I, I think that's like an enjoyable one. I mean, yeah. all of those would play on like uh, Channel Eleven when we were kids. It would be like Short Circuit. It would be like Superman Three. It'd be like Oh God, Book Two or oh, something. Superman Three, the Richard Pryor one. Yeah, those would always play like in the middle of the day on like a Sunday. I saw Superman Four more on TV. Yeah, Which maybe is, that's the one I'm that's thinking a, that's of. That's a bum yeah. deal. I mean, uh, there's something noble about what they wanted to do, you know, the anti-nuclear movie. But like, they needed more than twenty three dollars to make that movie, <laughs> and they just didn't have it. Yeah, twenty three dollars was not enough. But uh, all right, so back to seventy seven. Annie Hall. Annie, Annie Hall. Hall. Which I am. I'm probably the biggest Woody Allen fan of here. Is that safe to say? He's he's my favorite filmmaker. If I had to pick one filmmaker, and I'm using that word filmmaker specifically because. I'm not entirely sure I would call him my favorite director, but as far as a filmmaker, he's my favorite. And Annie Hall isn't actually, I wouldn't put that in my like top five favorite films of his. I love Annie Hall. I think I like all of his movies. That's part of why he's my favorite filmmaker. Like even like the crappy, supposedly crappy ones, like I still find enjoyable. I just like the vibe of them. But Annie Hall, I feel like it gets kind of overrated. I feel like Manhattan is way better. I feel like Stardust Memories is way better. Purple Rose of Cairo. He's got these other you ones. Like that Purple are just... Rose of Cairo more than Annie Hall. Oh you like yeah, Manhattan oh, yeah. more than Annie Hall. Absolutely. I, I love Sweet and Lowdown. I think that's maybe his best film. I love Zelig. I think Zelig's probably my favorite film is. But Annie Hall, like because of what it spawned, I feel like it gets a little overrated. What do you mean? What it spawned? The idea of that uh, breaking down the fourth wall romance right. thing. Which wasn't that not the original intent. It was just the first cut was shitty. The I fir- heard that the somewhere. The first like cut they was had shitty to- on some of his films. And he he's one of those guys that he'll he'll go back and reshoot an entire movie. Isn't, isn't that what he did with Annie Hall? Because it was very similar to what happened with Star Wars, where the first cut was a disaster. And then they had to go back and they had to re-edit it. So they added things like... In the original cut of uh, Star Wars, the trench run was not happening while the Death Star was like coming to blow up the planet. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So there was no time pressure to it, mm. which it kind of just wow. Made that it really feel changes the movie. Yeah, and Han isn't as big a deal in it, and there's there's more time on Tatooine at the beginning. Huh. There's actually there's a restoration job somebody did where he tried to put together the pre release oh, wow. cut, which is really interesting. If we if we can find a link to that, we'll put that up on the site. It's called Deleted Magic. But but I th- I was under the impression it was the same thing with Annie Hall where he made sort of a straight romantic comedy and didn't like it so right yeah that might be, that com- might be the case I know the the big famous one with him is September which he shot with a completely different cast and then he watched it and he realized that he didn't like the casting and didn't like what he did with it and still under budget he shot the film again <laughs> with a completely different cast and you know like that version and so nobody has seen this early September cut, which it had like a lot of cool people in it and it's just gone. It's just buried somewhere. Nobody will ever see this entire Woody Allen film that was shot with the exact same script. It's yeah, incredible. That could be a whole nother topic. Oh yeah. I love Annie Hall. I, I guess, I don't know. There's something about Annie Hall that is just, it's so truthful, 
You know, it's just very honest. It's very honest about what really makes relationships work and what really breaks them apart. You know, there's so much there's so much interesting in that. And then it's also just so consistently funny. And also, I mean, it has an awesome, you know, female star that's just super iconic, especially fashion wise. She really set the trend in a lot of ways. She Definitely. I mean, man, yeah, every girl in New York dresses like that. Yeah, her. that's part of that influence of that. I think the look of it. Yeah. And that was all that was all um That was all Diane Keaton's wardrobe, right? Yeah, that was all Diane was really? Keaton. Yeah. yeah. And that's awesome. I mean, like there's so much of her in it and there's so much of of him and it, it, there's so much like sort of raw emotion in it. And and then again, yeah, it's so consistently funny. You get Christopher Walken's best cameo. Oh. You know, like <laughs> that boss will sort of set the track for Marshall the rest McClellan of him. Marshall McLuhan show up in it? Yeah. He walks uh he walks And like screen, Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. I haven't seen it in years. Yeah, Jeff Goldblum has that great line. In you know, the best part of it is Tony Roberts. He's Tony like Roberts the best part is of so everything. underrated. He's, he's, oh my God, he's oh such my. an ace in the hole. So fucking funny. Everything from, from uh, Pelham 123 on, everything he... See, I love him in uh, Played Against Sam. Which, yeah. Which, uh, That's an underrated one. Oh yeah, because Woody Allen didn't direct that one. He just yeah. wrote the, you know, I, I, he might not even... I guess he did write the screenplay for it. I know he wrote the it play. It started as a play. Yeah, yeah, he wrote the play initially. I guess he adapted it. Um, but Tony Roberts is hysterical in that. I love him and Keaton in that one more than I love them in Annie Hall. I think Annie Hall, obviously by design, there's kind of like a, you know, it's it's not exactly a love story. There's a wrench in it just by them not actually being right for each other. And I, I just like their uh, chemistry way better in Played Against Sam. I think I like Hannah and her sister more than any of them. Or that one or uh, what's the one with Alan Alda? Crimes and Misdemeanors. Annie Hall, um, I'm impressed with it more than I like it. Yeah, I mean I that one. That. If we go back to legacies again, I mean that one is overwhelming. The the influence that movie had, and I think a positive influence. It, it really sort of broke, sure, a mold and and kind of opened people up to try different versions of of the old movie stories. Which is always, I think, where Alan, who I'm not as big a fan of as you, where where he succeeded was, I think, always in retooling old premises yeah and the only problem he would run into with that where people weren't on board is i think when he tried to do bergman and when he tried to do you know Truffaut, he didn't really elevate it in the same way that he would elevate concepts with like annie hall or something like that's where people kind of are like eh, i don't really like the drama stuff i don't really like the straight annie stuff. hall was more modern too yeah. annie hall and star wars are an interesting pair because they're both so hugely influenced by Marshall McLuhan. Right. I mean, he's in Annie Hall. Well, that's what... Uh, that's Lucas what, talked about him all the time. Yeah, that's what Harry Brewis pointed out. He wrote a piece not too long ago for the site about uh, Marshall McLuhan's huge influence on both Star Wars and Annie Hall. And for that to happen in the same year on the same top 10 list, that's incredible. Yeah. I mean, that's, that was... That's why it's so interesting to look at these things. Yeah, that was hovering over out. both those guys' heads when they were making those movies. I think what what also, you know, works for Annie Hall versus Woody Allen's later drama is the fact that he... I, I think that Woody Allen is best when he's a comedian. I really do. There's a couple of, like, three... No, two women. Another woman. Another woman. That's a great <laughs> film. Yeah. We'll Jenna talk Rollins about three and Gene Hackman. Another woman is amazing. Incredible. And that's also... That's a very straight film. But I mean, I don't know. My favorite Woody Allen is Bananas. Really? Totally. Really? I can't favorite. sit through those. Oh, ones. God. It's hilarious. It makes me laugh so hard and consistently. Whereas like, so what's so good about Annie Hall is that he manages to like both walk this line of having so many iconic jokes 
that that whole movie is is so quotable. There's so many memorable scenes, like just everything, and it was edited so well. Yeah. But then it also does have that sort of you know emotional aspect. It does really you know I I find it super relatable. Yeah. You know? And the the summation of that film where he kind of wraps it up with like the egg story. I think that's what, right. That's one of the big things that makes that film really work. Is that you know yeah it has all these iconic funny moments, but then he really hammers home like a thesis for it with just that. Yeah, it's introspective it and just it's thoughtful. Brings, yeah, it brings yeah. it all full circle. He really... And that great shot of him walking wraps a against, bow around the, it. against the traffic. Yeah. Which is, um, wasn't that not intended? It just sort of happened. I mean, I always hear that with any uh, any movie where they somebody's walking across traffic. Like you hear that with Midnight Cowboy and yeah. you hear that with yeah. like a lot of stuff. I always never remember which ones are the real ones and which ones are like the wishful thinking like sort of thing. But Annie Hall, we can call local cinema as well. Oh, sure. That's like a major yeah. Manhattan movie. That's yeah. exactly what Manhattan's like. That's the other thing. It's very, I feel like it, you know, that's kind of still what Manhattan's like in a lot of ways. You mm-hmm. know, you yeah. take someone out on a date to go see a four hour Holocaust movie. Like that's, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that and it still happens. Just like a little out of touch and a little like ivory towered. You know, yeah. which is a, like a good element I, well, of Annie Hall. It doesn't hide from that. You right. Know? Him going to that dinner scene with her family is like, oh, man, like it, it, yeah, it or, just sums it up. It sums up what it's like being a, a Brooklyn, New York Jew growing up. And then you go date people that have just moved to New York to make it yeah. to the big city. <laughs> and, you know, like she's terrified of spiders and her grandma's terrified of uh, your big nose, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. And my favorite part of the movie where um, they're about to try the coke. And he sneezes all over it. Oh yeah, that was a that yeah. was an ad lib, right? Was it really? Yeah. And they had to cut it like it was supposed to go on longer, but they had to cut it early because she bursts out laughing right <laughs> after he does it. So if you watch it, you can almost see where like she's right about to burst out laughing, and then they just cut the scene. Yeah, there's something about that part that I thought was just like so incisive about Manhattan versus the outer boroughs. I, in just this weird way, that one always got me. All right, so to get off the uh, the top ten list with another popular movie which was you know kind of like a crowd favorite is uh pumping iron which i i adore that movie i mean that's the movie where people fell in love with arnold schwarzenegger and sort of falling in love with by hating him and kind of just enjoying his presence and also falling in love with lou ferrigno and just his struggle and really getting to know him that is just the craziest movie oh it's insane that is in like the sea of absolutely insane documentaries out there Gotta be like top, like, I don't, I don't understand how they came to that topic, let alone found those two. I mean, that's it. a very influential documentary. If you want to see like the great, like fly on the wall stuff and like zooming in on such a, such a small world and blowing it up to movie proportions and just imbuing you with like this crazy place that you would never enter just in your daily life. Like that's just, that's it. That's such a great film, man. Yeah, and I mean, the future of cinema was Arnold. Yeah. It was uh, five years later was Conan, seven was Terminator 1. Yeah, you're seeing one. the future of cinema, you're seeing the future of documentaries. King of Kong. Well, there you go. That's that's one. The Spelling Bee movie that I cannot remember the name of. Spellbound. Spellbound, yeah. Which I didn't, I didn't like it was much. It was all right. To be honest, I would have thought if one of them was going to be the catalyst for that, it would have been Hands on a Hard Body. Oh, but, that's um, a that's a tremendous fucking weird fucking film. Yeah, there just became this spate of sort of like weird personal um, character piece documentaries in, yeah, in the two thousands. That's sort of coming. It feels those. like it's abating a little bit, which is yeah. kind of a shame. But Pumping Iron really sort of foretold all that, and you could make the case that 
Terminator 1 was the most influential movie from the 80s to today, flat out. And Pumping Iron is just this perfect look at preparing for that. Yeah. This is just sort of like you can feel it like in the air. And it's like, guys, you're about to see really big men. Yeah. <laughs> for a whole And decade. you're about to see this dude who, even when you think he's lost his goddamn mind, you cannot for a second stop looking at. Yeah. Because he's just raw charisma. And Pumping Iron is a great look at how he's raw charisma because he's fucking crazy. Delightfully so, but he's a goddamn lunatic in Pumping Iron. And it kind of it kind of goes into like the weird shit with his father too in that yeah. film. It goes into like the weird like Nazi stuff that was going on, and like he has this really strange, strange relationship with uh, his dad. And it's amazing that you see that really early on in his career with that film, like right before he hits and becomes this mega star. Yeah. You get this really intimate look at this person that you probably wouldn't have gotten that intimate look with had he just started out you know, doing Terminator and all that. Yeah, around the sort of pumping iron Hercules in New York area, you feel like he was a little more unvarnished. Yeah, it was like with Stallone with Rocky. Like yeah. when Rocky came Stallone's out- Stallone's such a great example. Yeah, when Rocky came out, you know, my parents shook his hand at like a screening of it in the city. Like he was out there shaking hands and like just being there for like all the screenings and just saying hi to people yeah. and like greeting them. He's still taking selfies uh, on the top of. Uh... Oh, yeah. There was a there was a great example uh, just the other yeah. week where a couple of guys were running up the, uh... the steps. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I heard about that. That was awesome. He started to sort of come back to earth a little bit, but he um, Stallone's a fascinating Ego Gone Wild story because um, Ted Kotcheff, the guy who directed First Blood, told me once, I asked him about, because the book First Blood, Rambo dies at the end. There's an alternate ending where they shot it that way. And I asked him, did they intend to use that? Was that ever like seriously a consideration or was it just sort of, you know, something they did to appease the writer? And he told me that Stallone was really for that ending. The one when, where he dies. Yeah. And when they made wow. Rambo, St Stallone wanted to do it like the book and have Rambo die at the end. And then famously, by the time Rambo 2 rolled around in 85, he, uh, he was like rewriting the scripts to make himself more of a, more of a hero in them. He, he stripped Cameron's uh, original Rambo 2 script of all this psychological torment and sort of varnished Rambo into being kind of like just a giant action figure. Yeah. And it became, he, he changed his image like that, which you can see in a, in a kind of more subtle sense, Schwarzenegger do the same thing. And Pumping Iron is like this amazing look right before he, he ever thinks to do it. Yeah, and then I guess the, uh, the film Rambo, the, you know, the fourth one is almost like him trying to bring it back to that in yeah. parts, him trying to bring it back to like the intimacy of the first one. Like yeah. there's a little bit of that. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a it very, has some success with it. It's almost like it rides a line between the very bloody like action-y stuff and also there's a little bit of a sensitive vibe yeah. to that one. That was a very good movie. Rambo 4 was uh, underrated, I think. Of course, it didn't come out in 1977, though. So <laughs> no, but <laughs> we you know what did? Off-topic. Uh, yeah, we got to bring it back to 77. You know what did? If we're, if we're off the top 10 now, and we can finally talk about it. Yeah, yeah. The Let's... famous bomb of 1977, William Friedkin's Sorcerer. Oh, uh, yeah. Which is like rehabilitated to the extreme. It's yeah. like Blade Runner now where... You know, it's it's more beloved than I think even they ever thought it would have been. Oh, absolutely, and a lot of that, like uh, in very recent years. Yeah, it it um, if if Blade Runner was rehabilitated because VHS and home video happened, I think Sorcerer might be the the only one yet that was rehabilitated because Blu-ray happened. Yep, 
and because they had an excuse to do a major restoration of it. And all these news sources were talking about it, some for the first time. And it's such a beautiful movie that had been in such terrible quality for so long. And the film that it was based on, Wages of Fear, I, I adore. I yeah, love that it's movie. A wonderful, wonderful film. Yeah. And it's it's one of those stories and those premises where as long as you have like a great director behind it, it's going to be a good film. You, you know, know, there's a third version. Oh, really? Not a lot of people know this. 1950s. Um, set in America. Really? Yeah, there's a, there's a third version of it that not a lot of people know about because it was not a success even when it came out. That's crazy. It's, I think, 58. It's called Violent Road. Howard W. Kosh directed it, who was a... Um, he, he was one of the producers of the uh, I Was a Teenage Werewolf, I Was a Teenage Frankenstein movies. He was, he was a um, sort of low-budget genre filmmaker in the, in the 50s. And it's all right. I mean, it's, it's interesting to see that story in the hands of somebody who's not as good Exactly. Because it's so much on the tension that it's got to, like, if you don't have, like, a heavy-hitting director, it's going to fall apart because you have to nail all those tension moments. And I saw Sorcerer in theaters uh, last year when it came back, and even having seen it before two or three times on VHS, I mean, I was literally, like, grabbing the seat in front of me, (laughs) shaking it at certain point. I mean, that movie is, you can tell from the way he shoots his movies, like, the famous stories of him firing off guns on the set of The Exorcist to keep everybody on edge and all that. He's like a little bit of a sadistic director. And that's what you want for that yeah, kind of it's, premise. You really need a sadist to make that movie work. It's one of the most naturally gripping premises. Because yeah. it's like, you know, most films about cars, it's about getting them going really, really fast and crashing them into each other. This is a film premise that's about driving very, very carefully and getting to your destination as safely as possible. Yeah. And that's all you have to do. And then, you know, examining that for 90 minutes or two hours becomes so fucking tense. It's probably around 90 minutes of that because you forget how much of the movie is that, um, that sort of like getting the team together beginning, which is really great. Yeah. Doesn't it start in, in Egypt or something and you have like a, a terrorist bombing? And it's just this scene out of nowhere that looks nothing like the rest of the movie, and it's mm. real gripping. And then that stuff in Paris when the guy gets shot in the Porsche, which is, I mean, you could have a whole movie of just that set. The Parisian, like, beautiful restaurants where they're eating the escargot and those, like, incredible hotel rooms. And it rooms. throws you off. Yeah. It throws you and off the scent. The, the, the stuff in uh, Newark or Jersey City or wherever it is where you meet Roy Scheider is, like, one of the best depictions of that area you could imagine. Where you open with that that great shot of the bride at the wedding with the black eye, who you never see again, mm. never see before, but it's like a whole story told in just that. Friedkin's picture. good at that, man. My favorite stuff in The Exorcist, I gotta say, is the uh, medical examinations. Oh yeah, me too. By that's far. the that's just the whole, that's a whole movie for me. And the priest with his mother stuff is great too. Mm-hmm. That's really good stuff. There's yeah, the little just like one off side stories in that are really tremendous. Another one from 77, which I'm a big fan of. I don't know if you guys are a big fan of his uh, Kentucky Fried movie. Have you seen that, Jenna? Nope. I also haven't seen this other one you guys are talking Sorcerer. about. I feel bad. It sounds great. Yeah, Sorcerer is um, Sorcerer was very ahead of its time. It bombed because it's a movie with no wizardry of any kind in it, and they exactly. named it Sorcerer. Uh, well, and that's 100% why it bombed. <laughs> Should have delivered. So you yeah. like, uh, do you like Kentucky Fried movie? No, I've never seen it. Really? Well, that's a, I mean, that's a hugely influential comedy film. You know, it's, it's Zucker Brothers. It's, uh, it's, it's sketches, right? Yeah, it's a lot of, 
it's a lot of what you see now on like Adult Swim with, you know, Tim and Eric and a lot of stuff where it'll be like a sketch for like a couple seconds and then that's it. And then you move on to something else. And there, there are some like extended sequences in it, but mostly it's just, it's all like sketch stuff that you couldn't get away with on like Saturday Night Live or something because it's got nudity or it's got vulgarity of some sort. And it's just, it, it's this great template for, you know, rebelling against the safe sketch format that had been just immediately established with SNL. It's like, was that safe yet, though? I mean, it was still a pretty well, yeah, it was show at that point. And then Kentucky Fried Movie was like, all right, we can go way further than what people are thinking is, you know, a little out there already. Like there, there's a just as an example, there's a scene in it where it's like two people making out and like starting to have sex and getting like fully naked in front of a uh, TV that's on and it's like the news people like they start noticing it like as they're doing the news and they're like watching on and it's just one of those like pure like performance art moments where you're seeing like two people you know just get nude together and it's something that you couldn't do in sketch on TV obviously and it's something that's such a pure easy effortless example of taking it further and taking performance art way further it's like bringing it to like the most bare sort of performance art aspects of just nudity, you know? You're uh, reminding me a lot of like, well, I've, Monty Python did a lot of that in movies or, or like the Magic Christian. Right. Made a lot of, What's the Magic Christian? Oh, with uh, Peter Sellers and Ringo. Man, I thought I knew all the Ringo movies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's an oddball one. I mean, but it's just like all these like sort of strange, because I, I, was, I was thinking about that recently, all these like very like, bits of sketches in a movie and they could I guess you could get away with that because you just couldn't put it on TV yep yeah is that your favorite comedy of the year yeah I mean I guess it would be that or Slapshot and Slapshot I never like I don't think it's that funny but I like it a lot I the exact same way there's really it's not that funny a movie like the the one good part is when he's walking out of the the woman's office and he turns around and says that shit about her son (laughs) that part kills me Every single it's time. It's just a, I love, I love but, the vibe of that yeah, movie yeah, so much. You know what it's like? It's like, um, it's like the friends of Eddie Coyle about a hockey team. Yeah. It's just this like dirty Rust Belt city. I love the look of that film. Yeah, me too. You know what, um, kind of reminds me of? Semi-Pro, that Will Ferrell movie. It did. Yeah. I, I, and it's, that's not, a, that's not that good of a movie, but it, it, it did pick up on that. It's not that good of a movie, but that is like a masterpiece of production design. Semi-pro, yeah. I think. I think that's some of the best production design of the decade and the costumes and everything. I saw some people like talking about the, uh, the Super Bowl with, uh, you know, Katy Perry and apparently like a lot of the, uh, her stuff with like the beach balls and like the sharks and everything was like kind of influenced by semi-pro. It looked like the dream sequence from 22 Jump Street. Oh yeah, <laughs> it was, was really that good. Was, it was show. great. It was great. I don't like Katy Perry, but that was an amazing. Yeah, those beach balls singing sold. <laughs> and the the tiger, that tiger was awesome. Or the lion. Oh yeah, that was, was cool. That was just rad as hell, man. All right. Well, speaking about surreal, crazy LSD shit, you know what else came out in 1977? Oh yeah, was a racer head oh, and three yeah. women, both of which are completely bizarre. And and I know with three women, I guess I'll talk about first. Just because that movie is so, it's so strange. Like at best, it's based at, on a dream. Yeah. And you can tell because yeah. at best it's atmospheric and at worst, you just want to like fall asleep in my opinion. But really, I love it. It reminds me of The Shining. 
Both of those movies remind me of The Shining. I think it, I think Eraserhead's really funny, and that prevented me from getting into it because I started watching it. I remember, and like I just thought it was like ridiculous and funny, and then I stopped watching it because I thought I was having like the wrong reaction to it. I thought like I, I was like, oh, okay, I just guess I just don't like that movie. And then like the more people I talked to, like yeah, there's like really funny shit in that, and I was like, oh, okay, well I have to actually watch it then you know but like I, it was like it, it got built up in my head as like that was like his most dark and twisted and strange and abstract movie usually those ones are the funniest though That's yeah he's a, a very funny filmmaker it's another movie i think that gets overwhelmed by this sort of hype and weird yeah. attitude because it really isn't i mean I, what i remember hearing about it was oh it's really difficult no one knows what it's about yeah. it's really mysterious i'm like it's fucking obvious and then also yeah it's sort of funny it's like you know, about insecurity, in my opinion, it's about, you know, sort of there's a fear of childbirth. There's a fear of everything, you know, but it also you can watch it and not really care. I mean, you can Are watch you it and just Lynch enjoy person? it. Yeah, I like Lynch. Yeah, yeah, I like uh, I'd say about half his shit. You know, I think that's pretty standard for Lynch. Yeah. Yeah. You know, actually, th- three women, I thought um, in a lot of ways, Maholland Drive is kind of Lynch trying to remake that. film. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that just strange, just dreamy semi-pointless but good looking (laughs) three women i feel like you gotta be so secure in yourself as a filmmaker to even like approach that project because when you look at it on paper there's no reason that movie should work you know i don't really i don't know that it it does almost but but there's some scenes for me it's just there's something about it that like that birthing scene is fantastic yeah there's something about it that just burrows into your head i've never seen it so i'm out on this one oh it's it's I wonder. I, you might like it, actually, Cody. I don't know. It's it's, it's very strange. Shelley Duvall, man. You should just just if Shelley Duvall's in it, give it a whirl. I'm yeah. very yeah. I'm very unexplored when it comes to Altman. I've, I've only like ventured in for like fucking Popeye and uh, Popeye is underrated. I I can't see John. You love Altman. Popeye. No, I liked Altman more when I was maybe 14 than I do now. Uh, but I think he was crazy talented you went I, through I like, like his... the paul thomas anderson phase of altman yes because i think he came into it when he was that age too yeah if, if altman hits you when you're like a teenager sort of the age that people discover lynch mm. right i didn't really get into lynch when i was like 14 yeah, see, I, got I, went, into altman. I went lynch head first when i was 14 or yeah so. and there's some of those filmmakers and you know people treat it as a knock against them i'm not sure it is no I think that's sort of a valid. Well, it's like music you to listen do. to when you're a teenager, and you either click into or you yeah. don't. Yeah, Altman just kind of drives me nuts. But I, I've watched a good amount of his movies, just trying to. I well, I was being sort of semi forced to watch them. It's like, no, you have to. You know, one of my friends was like, you know, you have to like Altman. Well, you have any, to like anybody him. you approach at that angle, you're not going to like. I, I so, really don't think you have to like Altman. <laughs> I made the effort, man. He does. I like some Altman, but. That's, I, fuck Mash. I'm gonna say that. I mean, that's the thing. Like, if you if people into film, I think have that have this problem a lot. You can't like force somebody to like someone or something. And if you right. do, it's really gonna backfire on you. That's why I have I think such an aversion to Nolan. It's because so many people have like pushed me into those movies, and you know, fuck Nolan, dude. It's just <laughs> he's probably better than I think he is. But you know, like at a certain point, you're just like fuck off with this. I'm pretty sure every episode, by the way, that we've recorded this year has it, we say fuck Nolan. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. oh yeah. But you know what I mean? Like you I think that was the working title of the podcast. <laughs> and especially as a critic, you can't like bully somebody into liking something. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I don't like I, fucking Fellini. I'll say that out. Right? Damn. I'm not a Fellini, Fellini. guy. 
But I, I, yeah, I don't know. But I'll still give them a try. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there, there is, that, there is definitely I'll merit. Like, you might like try. Altman's um, TV stuff, like his Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes. And I his saw Combat his. Episodes. I, what was his um, documentary he did before, like, like in the fifties? The football one? No, it was about James Dean. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Saw that. <laughs> yeah, he was he was a big TV director before he was a movie director, and he I think he was really really good at it. He. Uh, his combat episodes were really innovative. It's funny because he's remembered for, you know, dialogue and just overlapping dialogue and sound and this and this. But uh, he has one episode of combat where a guy gets injured and the whole episode's following him back to his unit. And there's almost no dialogue in the entire episode. He never speaks. And there's almost no noise in it. And it's like 1962 or three black and white hour long TV. It's almost like a Twilight Zone, it sounds. Yeah. I mean, I, I think 60. 60 to 65 was a more innovative generation of television than people remember. And that one, that episode of Combat, that Altman one I point to in particular is as a big one. My favorite Altman's Long Goodbye. That one's so good. Yeah, you've said that before. You, yeah. you adore that one. I'm but everything that. else, man, I don't know. He just doesn't do it for me. I, the dialogue doesn't really do it. I don't know. The, but maybe that's also why I don't like P.T. Anderson that much, I'll be yeah. honest. I'm hearing Long Goodbye more and more as people's favorite Altman. That's a bad you know, like, movie. When I was first getting into Altman, which I guess was, you know, like maybe 12 or 14 years ago by now, it, it just didn't come up. Right. It, was, it wasn't one of the big ones. And now it's starting more and more. Uh, maybe it's just because I'm moving with different crowds, but I hear it brought up as people's favorite more and more. Yeah, Nashville was the go-to for a long time, I think. Nashville, I mean, Nashville has Nashville's merits. tremendous. Nashville's probably my favorite. But then can you just, wait, can we all just take a moment, though, and think, okay, 77... Smokey and the Bandit and Eraserhead. Yeah. Same year. Damn right. Well, you know what the, the union between them is? If you want to synthesize all the stuff we've talked about. Blow my mind right now. House. Oh, yeah, House. <laughs> when you said the surreal movie you were going to bring up, I was so excited because I thought it was going to be House. House. Ooh. I love House. Which is buck fucking wild off the chain in both directions of the 70s. It has that like... Glossy, disco, half-animated, gorgeous, funny edge. But then there's also this, like, dark, weird center of it, you know? Well, you have Obayashi, who was the d- director. It was, used to, he was a surrealist filmmaker who turned into, like, a commercial yeah. music video guy. And, and then he made thought it movie. was going to be his only movie, which yeah. it wasn't. But you, can, you have this sense of a, a filmmaker who... I, I, you see this a few times. Like, I would say... Killer of Sheep, which was the same year you see this in, you have this sense of someone who you feel like he really thinks that's it for him as a filmmaker. Star Wars, I think, has that feel. You feel like you're seeing somebody yeah. throw their entire subconscious at you. House is awesome, though, because it, like, Gondry must have been influenced by House, or, I think or at everybody least. Everybody was influenced by House. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, it has that music video quality to it for like a horror movie about these women going to a house. It's as if, you know, if you haven't seen this obscure Japanese film, these women going to a, you know, this house and it's haunted it and they all, anymore? well, I mean, I it's, like it's gotten it's, bigger. It's like traction now. Yeah. Yeah. Big. Criterion. I mean, that's where everybody heard of it. I assume. right? Yeah. It was one of the best. Um, I saw screening of it. It's one of their best finds, I think, because it really is where everybody found it was from them. And they pushed it really hard. They have like T-shirts and stuff. For well, it. yeah, they were they were doing those screenings of it, right? That was like a pretty big thing for a while yeah. here in here in New York City, at least. That was oh, over I the, saw it a while ago. The IFC Center. They probably were doing it. He's oh, got really? he's got a handful of other ones that 
um, I think rate worth reappraisal, but none of them really have uh, English language discs. You were telling me of one of them though, right? School in the Crosshairs. Yeah, which, which is, you uh, you start sending me screenshots and I was like, all right, well that's the one that I'm gonna really dig because Houseu, I I appreciate its vibe and everything, but it's it's a little much for me. Like I just I'm like, all right, I would rather just be, just be like a short film or something. But you were sending me shots from that, and I was like, I fucking love what I'm seeing here. Well, I really got to see this one. School in the Crosshairs is kind of cool because it starts out pretty low key. Like, it's about a girl who's psychic. It, I think it was early 80s when he did that one. It's about a girl who's psychic. or So it starts with this sort of, you know, vibe that it's going to be a little off kilter. But it's pretty, you know, like, grounded shots with natural light and normal settings. It looks almost like it doesn't even have a production designer at the beginning. It's just sort of like classrooms. And then about halfway through, it just explodes into, like, full house territory. Yeah. But out of nowhere. So it ends with, you know, like... This uh, shirtless Venusian in like a green background holding magic <laughs> triangles and like lasers coming out of everybody, everybody's eyes and just ideal. Like it, yeah, yeah, it gets it gets nuts, but I really want to see that. Yeah, whereas House kind of <laughs> House, I think is the better of the two, maybe for this reason. But it's worth seeing both of them just to see the the difference. Whereas House kind of gives you that immediately. You get about halfway through School in the Crosshairs before it happens. It really takes you by surprise. I think if you also, if you bring up House for 77, you got to bring up Suspiria, which was Dario Argento. Yeah. And that's also the same thing, Technicolor Horror Dream World. Beautiful movie. Beautiful movie, but also, not. I don't know that I think it's really that great of a film. I love yeah, it. Yeah, it's not my favorite Argento. Yeah, I, no, I, I always agreed. thought Inferno is way better than Suspiria. Oh, I like Bird with the Crystal Plumage or whatever it's called. Yeah. He's one of those guys <laughs> where everybody has their personal yeah, their favorite. Own. Well, the thing with him, I feel like, is... You can sort of see him get bored in the middle of some of his movies, mm-hmm. yeah. particularly Suspiria, because there's that conversation that they have out in, in this kind of weird looking, um, in front of this weird looking building at one point in the middle. I haven't seen it in a while, so I'm sort of struggling. But I remember at one point, the camera just starts to zoom in on the window behind them. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's a bad scene and it's a bad conversation. And it, it's like Argento just sort of loses interest in the middle. He loses interest the second a girl's not dying on screen. And <laughs> I would have liked to see him just do a full-out silent film with nothing but goblin music in it. Because whenever <laughs> anybody starts to talk in his movies, they come apart. Goblin's yeah. so fucking good, man. Yeah. yeah I the- think half the reason I like Suspiria is because of Goblin more than the movie itself. Half the, maybe 90% of the reason why I love Suspiria is because I love Jessica Harper. She's great. She is incredible in that. And she's she's great in one of my favorite Woody Allen's, which is Stardust Memories. I, I love her in that. I love her in Suspiria. She's an awesome little underrated actress who kind of just wasn't in much stuff yeah. beyond that. We should do a cut of uh, Suspiria that has no dialogue, but it has a soundtrack and yeah. then just the images and play it at a party. You know, That's what, I mean? what I'm saying. Like <laughs> I would if, fucking love that. If any uh, aspiring editors are out there are kind of bored. Yeah, make our try dreams to come turn, true. Yeah, try to turn Suspiria into a silent movie. You probably wouldn't have to cut that much. Maybe like 20 minutes out of it. <laughs> and keep the official, screaming. Keep the official screaming. smug film challenge. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. And see if yeah. you can do it in a way that still tells the story. Yeah. Because I'll bet you could. It's a simple fucking story. Yeah. You probably could do it. I, I like that sometimes when you get like a DVD that has like the just isolated score track. You ever get those? Oh, I used to do that on Alien all the time. Those are I would fucking just type fun, to the man. Alien soundtrack. Oh, yeah. You know what I, I like completely silent, no music, no anything, is I adore the happening 
with no dialogue, no sound, no nothing. If you watch that film on mute, it's everything you love about Tak Fujimoto, just heightened to the extreme. He's such a great visual storyteller. He's such a great underrated DP. See, that's interesting. And he nails that fucking movie so well. That's interesting to me because I would have thought the happening was a little too um, digitally tweaked, the saturation for you. I think the framing is what gets me past it. Yeah. I think the framing of the shots. It, it I agree with has you that with the shine colors that you usually don't like. Yeah, I agree with you with the colors. I agree with you with how they like did fine tuning on like the color mix and all that. You know, I'm a stickler for that shit. That shit can drive me up the wall. But the framing of the shots, the cuts, I adore Fujimoto's work on that film, and I, I like the movie in general. I think it's just a fun, silly B movie. Another fun, silly B movie, which actually is quite dark and isn't a B movie, but kind of gets pretended like it's a B movie is uh, Rolling Thunder 1977. Oh boy. Big favorite of Tarantino. He named his production company Rolling Thunder Pictures based off of it. It was one of those movies that a lot of people didn't see until recent years. It was one of those ones where it wasn't really popular on VHS and then it wasn't on DVD for a long time. And then I think, you know, whatever place put it out is one of those like made to order DVDs. And that's when people started seeing it again. That's a great fucking movie. Paul Schrader's script, William Devane, Tommy Lee Jones. That's like prime Schrader too, before he lost it. Yeah. I mean, that's just a great fucking movie. And it's almost like a Coen Brothers movie in parts, it feels like. Like just the the way that the story progresses, it's it's very ahead of its time. And the way the comedy comes in. Yeah. Because there's that one part where um, Tommy Lee Jones finds out what William Devane is going to do. And there's just this long... Like Coen Brothers, like pregnant pause. Oh, yeah. And then he just goes, I'll go get my gear. Yeah. That feels very much like that could be in no country. Yeah. The director, John Flynn, he he directed two others that are kind of like minor hits that are huge favorites of mine. He directed Lock Up with uh, Stallone, which is like... Really? That's the same guy? Yeah. It's the B-movie version of Shawshank, <laughs> which I I find way more more enjoyable than Shawshank, even though Shawshank is a fucking phenomenal film. And he also directed Out for Justice, which is, I guess, I, I would call it my favorite Seagal film. I don't know if you saw that one yet, Jenna. Did you watch Out for Justice yet? I, uh, I don't think so. I mean, we gave you a stack of these fucking Seagal movies. Like, I'm early working on, on them. I'm working early on Early on in doing Smug Film, if you haven't listened to the old episodes, I gave her a huge stack of uh, Seagals, and she's slowly working her way through them. But you're liking them for the most part, right? I mean, they're varying degrees of craziness. I yeah. mean, I mean, I, Which I'll, I'll watch fa- it. I'm into it. Which is your favorite? Was it Fire Down Below? Or yeah, that's my favorite so far. See, I that's think my favorite. It, but that's actually like, my favorite, probably. Yeah. Alfred Justice is close second, though. Mostly because I'm just a big fan of the band. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fire Down Below, like, man, they just stack the movie around Seagal. Yeah. You know, they know he's not going to be able to carry it, so they find a way to carry oh, that yeah. movie. <laughs> Harry Dean Stanton in it. Yeah. yeah. My favorite thing about Fire Down Below, I probably we probably covered this on the podcast, is that it's one of the few action movies where the star never takes a hit of damage whatsoever. I don't think anybody even lands a punch or he even like falls or injures himself whatsoever. The entire movie, he's just like this indestructible like god mode doom like kind of person who's just like waltzing through this town and anybody that tries to inflict damage, he just turns it around on them. Like he takes damage on like some of his other movies. I would say as far as action stars, he probably takes the least damage overall as it goes on. But he didn't make a movie in 1977. Yeah, Cody. That's true. All right. Let's get back to Rolling Thunder because, man. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Rolling Thunder is fucking amazing. And I would suggest that movie for even people that don't like action movies. I don't think you need to like that sort of weird, like, 
revenge genre tip to really get into it. There's some great set dressing in that movie too. There's this great part where he's got like this gun closet and he's talking to a guy in his gun closet and all of the guns on the wall are pointed directly at his fucking head. Like they're all laid out on the wall so that they're just all like zooming towards him. And it's just this great touch of dressing that set that I, I absolutely adore that. That one feels like an 80s movie to me. Oh, yeah. Doesn't it? Oh, yeah. It really feels like like it was just like a little early. Yeah, that's why it was a minor hit, I think. It just hit too early. And also, William Devane isn't really like, you don't really think of him as that guy. And yeah. he's twisted as fuck in that movie. And Tommy Lee Jones, I mean, you never see him that young. Very, very young. I mean, like youthful, like almost like early, like Robert De Niro young, you know, like back in like the Palma De Niro. Like yeah. he has that kind of like youthful, like, wait a second, do I even know who that is? Kind of look to him, you know? Like yeah. when you see until like, he talks, you don't really yeah. recognize him. <laughs> All right. So, John, what's a. I mean, we should probably wrap this up, but let's go through a couple other deep cuts and yeah, then quick, we'll, John, at, like, we'll go to mailbag. Like name 50 movies and then we'll just- <laughs> I, I know you got a huge list over there, 77. Yeah, I got a big list. Uh, we'll do like a lightning round. I think one of the more interesting little twofers of 77 is Werner Herzog did Strassic, which is his first movie set in America, and La Souffre, which is the movie where, the documentary where he goes- to that volcano and tries to film it erupting. Ah. Same year. So you have the peak crazy Herzog, where he literally is going to this island, daring death and winning. And then you have, Strasig is the first time Herzog does a movie in America, which is interesting because for a German filmmaker, I mean, he really became an American filmmaker. And you can see the sort of the transition there. It's actually, I would say it's the end of my favorite era of Werner Herzog, which is, you know... Agiri to um, to Strassic, I think, is like a bulletproof run. Oh, that's an incredible run. Agiri is my favorite of them, but that's a yeah, hell of a too. fucking run. And my my favorite deepest cut of '77 is uh, about a half hour long British public safety <laughs> industrial film. <laughs> Wait, called. You're not downplaying the deep cut. <laughs> yeah. We yeah. need like just like a, a jingle for that. That's so D'Amico. Yeah, <laughs> it's called Apaches, and it's uh, it's about these like eight kids who uh, are on a farm, and it's a farm safety thing. So it pretty much just becomes Final Destination with these kids where they really? just die <laughs> one by one. Yeah, but oh it's got God. it's shot in that like Alan Clark kitchen sink style. Oh my God. Style yeah, with that this, sounds like, amazing. Yeah, that like sounds improvised great. dialogue and this sort of like overlapping dialogue I and love this natural that. lighting. And it's really beautiful, but it's it's this weird, dark... I'm I'm fascinated by that whole industrial film thing because essentially it's seeing filmmakers who never got to make a real movie right. try to make a movie out of something that shouldn't be one. And this is probably the best attempt anybody had of making a real movie out of what amounts to a health class film. Is that one up on YouTube or anywhere? Yeah, that one's very easy to find. We'll put, a, we'll put a link to that on the site. And there's some really cool subtle stuff in it. Like at one part, this little girl, it's a really haunting scene actually. She accidentally <laughs> drinks a cup of like rat poison and then she dies later that night. But then you see later on in the movie, like 10 minutes later, you see um, her father drinking a glass of whiskey and it's out of the same style glass. Oh man. So there's these like really quiet, like shots at like neglectful parents. Like that's, is that why she picked the glass? Is it like implied by that? Well, they, they sort of, you know, leave it to dangle, but there's these sort of shots at, um, at like shoddy parenting and right. just sort of like the, hereditary like 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 i was saying it becomes like a kitchen sink drama it becomes yeah. this sort of look at the 
British working class. That's incredible. Those Brits know their misery. Yeah. All right. So a couple others. Give me give me five in a row. Just a sentence on each. I would say most emotionally accessible historical film I've ever seen. <laughs> Iphigenia, Greek film, a, a, an adaptation of the myth, the Trojan War myth, where the king Agamemnon had to sacrifice his 12-year-old daughter so that they would win the war. And it's it's based on the Euripides play. Euripides was, uh, he was one of the three great Greek playwrights. Uh, he was um, contemporary with Sophocles and Aeclius, but he his stuff was a little more raw than theirs. He was uh, murdered by dogs. He was eaten alive by wild the dogs. The dogs murdered him? Yeah, uh, because he was uh, he was such a radical that they like they tore him apart with wild dogs. And and his last name was Pants. Eur- yeah, Euripides Pants. Wait, so somebody <laughs> used dogs to murder him, or the dogs murdered yes, him? Yes, I mean it was thousands <laughs> of years ago, so it's a little shady, but yeah, I couldn't pinpoint used, whether it was the dogs that used, took issue or. But, it was but where I'm going people. with this is his stuff was very radical for the time, and right. he was sort of like. Caravaggio, where it doesn't matter how long ago it was, you really feel the emotional yeah. impact of That's this stuff. Awesome, yeah. And Iphigenia is um it's Greek filmmakers doing a Greek myth on the shores of Greece. So like oh, wow. that sounds awesome. right, they're yeah. right there. But the whole premise out. is you watch this fucking 12-year-old girl like try to convince her father not to kill her. Jesus. And it's like the most heartbreaking, like very lean, almost no sets, beautiful little story. Fucking A. Wonderful movie. Sounds All right. Good. Give me another. Our Town, starring Hal Holbrook, which was uh, an early PBS filmed play. And it's uh, the place from like 1939 or whatever, the Thornton Wilder one, the Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, but it's the best production I've ever seen of it. Ned Beatty is in it. Oh, I love Ned Beatty. Yeah, just some wonderful performances on- um, Ned Beatty, man. On this big empty set. Really, really great. Uh, I stumbled on it by accident because I was looking for the 1940 movie. Uh-huh. And I found this one instead. I ended up liking it a lot more. Really good production. Uh, and then Martin, George Romero's yeah. uh, movie right before Dawn of the Dead, which I think is the best horror movie of the 70s. Martin's is probably his most radical movie. It's it's a complete ground up reimagining of the vampire myth where it becomes, what if it's just a fucking crazy kid? And it's this really great look at like the how horror movies will mess with your brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Martin, really wonderful little movie. And um, The Last Wave is Peter Weir, an early Peter Weir movie. It's it's almost like, it's it's about a, sort of an ecological disaster brimming, and it's all set in Australia. But it reminds me of uh, the Carpenter movie, Prince of Darkness. Mm. Do you remember like I the, love first, that one, yeah. the first 30 minutes of that movie, you're just outside and something feels like off. Mm. You know, like there's those shots of like the worms coming to the surface and everything looks nice, but it's just like a little off. Like the same sense you get in- um, It's almost like Blue Velvet. Yeah, I was going to say, when yeah. he finds the ear. Yeah. It's like a whole movie of just that. That's awesome. Nice. I remember before we start recording, we were talking about a little twofer as far as animation for 77. Yeah, you had uh, Allegro Non Tropo and uh, Wizards the same year. Yeah, the Bakshi one. Yeah, the the first of which was this uh, Italian uh, sort of lewd parody of uh, Fantasia. As though Fantasia wasn't lewd enough. Yeah. It, I mean, it, that, some of those uh, little nymphy mushroom lady people, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, it was. They, they were, wouldn't. They, they were wouldn't do cute. that stuff again. Yeah. <laughs> but but that one's really fun. It, it it's got this um, really ambitious hand drawn uh, animated. look. Yeah, that was a time for like drawing shit and trying to animate shit that you just can't possibly animate, and but yeah. just trying anyway. Like I remember, John Chris Felucci has a lot of great uh, blog posts. He's he's a really good blogger. He's sort of 
like veered off into just doing like just posting pictures now. But for a time, I guess a couple of years back, he was writing pretty extensively on animation. And he was making a point that a lot of like the early Bakshi stuff and a lot of the stuff people were trying in the 70s, it was taking stuff that you can really only do as still images and trying desperately to find a way to give it weight and motion and stuff. But really the only stuff that you can do like that is kind of like the, the 40s style of animation, the Looney Tunes stuff, you know, the early MGM, where you can actually give something the right weight to create animation that looks fantastic. So it was a lot of people trying to rebel against that and realizing that they couldn't really do it properly. Yeah, and Wizards is kind of like that. I mean, Bakshi's stuff in general, it always felt like he was his reach exceeded his grasp. Not yeah. in a bad way, but just in a in a very ambitious way. Wizards is... is uh, it's a movie nobody remembers at all except for the ending, but the ending is so good that it's worth power. I don't even want to spoil yeah, we, it, but that's not something to spoil. You just, just got to see that fucking ending. That's yeah. like a great fuck you ending. That's yeah, one of the I mean, best fuck you endings of all time. I don't know any ending that has more contempt for the story it was trying to tell yeah. than the ending of Wizards. <laughs> All right, so give me one more, and then we're going to go to the mailbag. The one Hobbit movie, one. right? Did The Hobbit come out in 77? The animation, talking about animation. Yeah. yeah I think was... it did. Maybe I'm lying. Yes, it did. Yeah. 77. Also terrible. Money goes to <laughs> Jenna. Yeah, yeah, another odd one. Isn't that the one where he has the slippers? The, the I bad don't guy? know what's happening. Uh, that and the Lord of the Rings movies. like yeah. they're, they're just basically like an acid trip in a bad way. But I have I have one last one, and it's the reason why I wanted to open this discussion with the concept of legacy and the concept of movies that have legacies and that have sort of elements to them that that extend beyond um, the, the content of the film itself and why it's worth viewing things in context in a lot of ways. We opened this talking about how the most important movie of 77 was Star Wars. It's one, you know, it changed the way movies were financed, marketed. It changed the whole industry in a lot of ways. It, it changed, you know, even what market that filmmakers went for it started to kind of open up the youth market again and it really you know it's if you make a short list of the most influential movies ever star wars is right up there but i do not think it was the most influential filmic event of 1977 and i think the tv miniseries roots ah far and away yeah the most important movie of the year roots uh they didn't expect it was going to be a hit at all they they stacked it all the episodes played sequentially, not once a week, but all in a row, because they wanted to burn out the series before Sweeps Week. They thought it was going to be a huge bomb. The reason was nobody had ever told a story like that before about slavery from the perspective of slaves. 76, you had the great movie, but the sort of the opposite side of this, Outlaw Josie Wales, which was about a Confederate soldier mm. rehabilitating himself. And that was kind of really the only perspective you had had on the Civil War in American theaters or television up till this point was, was uh, the, the lost cause Confederacy. Roots was what was deemed at the time black television, and they thought it was not going to play at all in any white market. It didn't run in a lot of the South, and it was such a hit that movie theaters didn't even bother opening the last few nights that it was on air. Wow. They just didn't play movies those nights because it was getting Super Bowl numbers and not Super Bowl then, Super Bowl now wow. numbers. I can't, I can't even fathom that. It was an extraordinary event. And it opened up the concept that you could talk about the seamier sides of American history in movies or in television. Yeah. And it's not going to end the world. You can make money talking about that. And, and it essentially introduced an entire murderer's row of great black actors to to screens. Yeah. 
I mean, it, it might be one of the most positive events in, in the era for, for filmmaking. You pretty much only had the Jeffersons on air before it as, as black film and black TV. And it, 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 it sort of destroyed that line. It was, it was the first time that you, you created this concept of just sort of American history television that doesn't have to sort of fall on that line. And in a, in a, in a more social sense, it created the concept for a lot of black Americans of, of genealogy, which nobody ever bothered to look up before right. because until Haley did it and until he created his center where you could do it because there was no apparatus in place for black Americans to find their roots until he created it. Entire cultures and histories were lost until he he was on TV all the time before that show came out. He was doing all these interviews and he was creating this concept of, of taking ownership of your history, which I personally think is really important. I've done that and it sort of creates, it sort of puts you personally in context really well. And he gave that to a generation through Roots, which also happens to be just a really good piece of television and I know it's a little bit of a cheat to say it was the most important movie of the year, but to me, the distinction lies because it was something that was filmed with an ending. You know, it doesn't matter that it was on TV. It was, you know, it was a one-off event. Right. Yeah, the event aspect, I would say. Yeah. That sets it apart for sure. So that's 77. That's a great, yeah, that was a great way to end it. Yeah, totally. 77, man. What a fucking year. The year we were all born. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, a tremendous year. But I mean, I hope this isn't the last time we do this because every year is interesting. Yeah, man. I think that's what we're learning. I mean, we started taking a look at 76. Who would have known that that, that number two one would have been that crazy IMAX movie? We got to start. We got to look at that one because that might be one worth examining. We should yeah. have a smug watching of that. Or if s- we can find it, I got to s- take a look if it's available. 75, I've said for a long time, I think is pound for pound the best year in the history of film. Well, then we should. That's I, a whole other episode. Let's do that one next. But I mean, then you got 1968 was such an well, incredible Let's do that year. one next. 1927. <laughs> All right, we're doing 27 next. 33. 33 we could do next. 2010. What a year that was. And that's not hard to do. Everybody saw all that stuff. What about 2025? Yeah. That was a good year. Great year. I was 25, born 25. Does anybody remember that show? Cleopatra, 25, 25? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do, sadly. All right, we're going to take a quick break and come back for questions. See you soon. And now, Chloe Peltier reviewing a movie she's seen parts of while working at the theater. Okay, so I've seen a lot of snippets of that there, Mernick and Snipper. There's a lot of really weird scenes where it feels really fake, but people take it really seriously and come out of it crying, though, anyway, probably because they relate to it because they're veterans or no veterans. But there's um, the part, of course, with the baby where the baby looks like a Cabbage Patch doll. A lot of people have been making fun of that. But one scene that stands out to me where the wife's acting is really terrible is when she just says two words. She says, Chris, no. And then um, it's from another room. It's early in the film. He walks in to the room and it turns out the two towers are falling and they find out about that. But the way she says it, it sounds like she's going to like prank him or something. It sounds like when he walks in there, there's going to be like she's going to be holding a squirt gun and naked or something. We go like, gotcha. And his PTSD is going to trigger. and He's going to freak out. Would have been a better scene, honestly. But I really think that that scene is like really disrespectful, the way that they handled it with the acting. And also like his acting is fine in the rest of the film, but... They ruin it because they do all these dramatic zooms on his face when he's looking through the sniper scope. He'll make like a good face and say a lot without saying anything. And then they'll zoom in on it really mechanically and it looks really fake and just takes you out of the movie. So don't like it very much. Seen it a lot. 
I know what I'm talking about, I think. Don't go see it. Thanks, Chloe. And now, back to the show. First question's from Brad. He asks, David Lynch or David Cronenberg? I'm a Lynch girl. I'm Cronenberg. Cronenberg girl? Yeah. Yeah. No, I was like Cronenberg more. I never really connected with Lynch. What do you think uh, got in the way? I don't know. It might have been timing. You know, it was what we were talking about before. I I wasn't... I wasn't like 14 when I first saw them, you know, I, I, I was a little later. See, I came into Cronenberg the same time I came into a Lynch, like that kind of like 14 year old, you know, exploring weird cinema time period. I think maybe even the first Cronenberg that I saw was Spider. Did you, did you ever see Spider? Yeah. Which is like a pretty good one. And it was so oddball that it just made me like, all right, I need to check out everything by him. I like Existence a lot. I like some of his kind of like weird 90s ones. Yeah, oh, I hated Existence. My sister loves that movie. Why don't you like that one? It's just so dopey. I, that's the thing. Cronenberg, I, I just can't relate to for some reason. I, I always see his movies and I like parts of them, but they don't, I don't know. I always find myself thinking that's dumb at some point or like being disappointed. See, that's me with Lynch. Yeah. Do you I, like a history of violence? or? No, I hated history of violence. That's the other thing with Cronenberg. There's some of his movies I just hate. Is there one that you like? Uh, I liked, um, uh, what's it? Naked Lunch. Yeah, I figured you'd like that one. But I don't, I was disappointed by, um, what was the doppelganger one? Dead Ringer? Dead Ringer, I wanted to like and I didn't. Did you like Videodrome? I actually, that's the only one I haven't seen. You might like that one. That was a pretty good one. Did you like The Fly? I mean, everybody likes The Fly. Yeah, The Fly is good. I mean, you love Goldblum. Yeah, he's uh, my buddy. The he's fly your little entryway. The Fly might be my favorite. Actually, no, The Brood is my favorite of his. I think Brood I like. so creepy. Yeah. I like Lynch better, but I like exploring Cronenberg's filmography way more. I'm not like in love with either of them, if I'm honest, but I would go Cronenberg. Cronenberg, yeah, he has, I feel like he has more variety. Yeah. And when he's good, he's better. You yeah. know, like those shots in the brood of them holding hands with the little kid walking her down the highway. That's like the scariest thing I've ever seen. And I love, I know people will point to stuff in Lynch, like the Mulholland Drive dumpster bit and all that and say that it really rattled them, but it just yeah, it, doesn't. It's not as, it it's just not doesn't as intense. I don't know why. Yeah. So I would, uh, I don't know. It's like you're, you're picking like who's got your favorite moments. I'd say Lynch is my favorite moments, but Cronenberg's more fun as a filmmaker to explore. Yeah, I mean, Cronenberg has a, a wider variety, but I have to say the older I get, the more I think maybe my favorite Lynch is Wild at Heart. Wild at Heart's great. Really? That's that's like, man, there's I something about that, that one, movie. Yeah. It's such a, it's like cute. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like really charming. It's a really charming movie. Great dialogue in that. It's great dialogue. There's, there's great characters. Boner with a capital O. That's one of my favorite <laughs> lines in film history. How about when you hear a deep sound coming from Bobby Peru? Yeah. And what's the one about his jacket where like this jacket is an oh, expression yeah. of my individuality and my uh, this, that, and the other. This, that's a great, uh, it's that's just all the, one, yeah. everyone is is at their best in that movie. Now, right. that I, now that I think about it, none of the Davids really hit me. David O. Russell doesn't really hit me. He definitely doesn't. I can't Fincher, stand that. Fincher outside like of either. Zodiac and Fight Club yeah. doesn't really hit me. What about David Kep? <laughs> I'm trying David, to, which one's David Kep? He's a, I mean, he's that screenwriter that did the War of Worlds remake. And oh, couple. yeah. I'm just trying to think of other Davids. David A. No. Ayer, right? David A. Yeah, he did the, like, didn't he do Blade or? No, that was. Uh, Goyer. 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 Who's terrible except for Blade, which is yeah. the best movie. <laughs> so maybe maybe David Goyer in 1998 is my favorite. <laughs> and outside of that, none. All right. So next question is from, is from Michael. And he asks, what's the best horror movie in the 1990s? 
Blair Witch. See, that's that's what fucks it up, right? <laughs> yeah, there's so many good ones. If it were, I mean, Blair Witch for just Blair like, Witch. yeah, it just Sergeant Pepper's the whole oh, decade. Oh man, what if we take Blair Witch out of the running and just assume it's the answer? Candyman. Candyman, that's a great pick. Ooh, Candyman. What a pick. Ooh, Candyman's good. <laughs> that is a good movie. That is a great score. I, I can't even think of any. Give me. It's so hard off the. Off, I know. I'm going to pull up a. If I like, could find a list. Just a random list of top 10 yeah. 90s horror. And we'll see if they're full of shit or not. All right. Here, I found favorite 90s horror movies in the IMDb list. And we're going to see if this person knows what they're talking about or not. Arachnophobia, number one. That's kind of an oddball pick, but I love that movie. I liked Arachnophobia. Someone's got Jacob's Ladder down. I, that, that one never blew me away. Misery. Oh, Misery was great. Oh, Silence oh, of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs. Okay, wait. Dead so, Alive. Ooh. What about Sixth Sense? Yeah, Sixth Sense. Sixth, Sixth Sense might be my yeah, Cemetery Man. That's Cemetery a great Man one. is awesome. That's a great one. That's the Italian one, right? Yeah. What is it in Italian? It's like Della Morte, Della Mar or something? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly yeah, it. From Dust Till Dawn. From Dust Till Dawn, man. I that's love that one. one. I don't know if I would even call it a horror movie. It's just such a... Such a B movie, you know, to switch of tones. It's a just, romp. Oh, Army yeah. of Darkness. Yeah, which I wouldn't, I don't know if I could even call that a horror movie either. Yeah, this can be creepy. It's got skeletons. Yeah. Event Horizon. <laughs> I can't deal with that movie. That movie is so bizarre. Tremors. Tremors. 19 is fucking so 90. Good. Ooh, that's the sleeper one. Ooh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. Tremors is, Tremors is a beast. All right. So if, if Blair Witch is off the table, I think neck and neck, it's Candyman, Tremors, and Sixth Sense, which maybe even I wouldn't even call a horror movie. Sixth Sense I watched again recently, and I was shocked at how well it holds up. Oh, it's good. Sixth Sense, yeah. just the character. Oh, man. It holds up for all the reasons The Exorcist does. The character stuff is so precise. Yeah. Like, the best part of that movie is um, that one little beat when they're coming back from the grocery store, and he's sitting in the um, shopping cart, and she just starts running and he puts his hands up. Mm. Just this weird, like beautiful little, and like the falling leaves around them and everything. That really hits hard, that movie. Yeah. Sixth Sense is just oof. All right. Here's another question. And this kind of plays into the 90s one. I'll use this one. This one's another one from Brad. He asks- Wait, uh, wait. What was Jenna's answer? Oh, I don't know. Sixth Sense or Cemetery Man's pretty awesome. Cemetery Man's a great I pick. Lo I love That's a that's beautiful movie. That's a good oddball movie. pick. All right. So Brad's other question, he asks- what was up with all the reality-bending movies from 1999? Fight Club, Matrix, Existence, Being John Malkovich. I guess that was just the whole leading up to 2000 kind of thing. I think people were on kind of like a kick with that. Yeah. And especially like the show Millennium. Yeah, and, and X-Files, and there's just this fallout yeah. of the whole conspiracy. It just felt like everything was like building up to something. I just think of Conan O'Brien's in the year 2000. Yeah, there was so much <laughs> fucking... Yeah, you know, it was just, you know, everybody was so... Y2K. ...comfortable and adjusted to technology that they thought was going to kill them that you felt like something was going to pop off. And it felt like there was... Yeah, I mean, it was sort of transitioning into the internet. And, you know, the internet brought a way to learn what was bullshit and what was real pretty quickly. Like, before the internet, you couldn't really validate, like different theories that people had or even like different facts about movies like remember like having arguments about like facts about movies where like if you wanted to prove somebody wrong you had to like find a book or something and so yeah. you di just didn't so there were all these like little factoids that you would just know yeah, about those books used to be such a big market and they used to be yeah. so much money huge fucking tomes like the video hound ones i yeah. remember it would like kill you if you couldn't remember like the name of a movie 
Like you just fucking die. Your brain would just explode and you wouldn't live on to see like the 2000s. Like it would just fucking get under your skin because you couldn't look anything fucking up. Well, that was sort of, I mean, puzzle cinema became such a big thing for a while there. And it's, it feels like it's starting to ebb away. Yeah. But you had like that whole thing like transmuted into like Memento and Donnie Darko and all these primer, you know, all these movies that are, and I guess it could only exist in an internet age where you could sit with like a bunch of people all over and try to take them apart. Exactly. Sort of frame by frame. And Blair was, Witch kind of piggybacked off yeah, that too. Yeah, Blair Witch, which is the greatest ad campaign for any movie yeah. ever. But you had, you know what it was? It was like the simultaneous rise of the internet and DVD. Yep. When you could go frame by frame and do chapter searches and cut back and there were like Easter eggs and things. You remember trying to go frame by frame on VHS? Oh, God. <laughs> you remember hitting that little pause button and trying to get some, and then like the tracking just starts yeah, creeping exactly. up and you're like, oh, man, this is going to cover it. And, you know, oh, yeah. fucking hell. Yeah. It's just movies went digital and then you had this avenue, this like hyperlink avenue to explore it, you know? Yeah. You could really analyze cinema, man. DVDs, yeah. it was like fucking A. Which, and I just had this argument a few weeks ago with regards to Nabokov and, and Pale Fire and doing that in literature. And I feel like it really, in the end, didn't amount to much. I feel like it didn't amount to much in movies either, you know? Maybe I'm underappreciating it, but like it feels like it went nowhere. It was more like a, uh, it was getting people excited about movies, I think, you know? Yeah. It was, it was a way to get people more excited about learning about that kind of thing, I think. Even if it didn't amount to anything in some big way, it was, it was a really, it felt like with DVD, people were really excited about films again. Yeah. It people was like, wanted a collection. Yeah, man. And like VHS, you didn't have that same feeling. It felt like you were getting ripped off with VHS and DVD, you didn't feel like you were getting ripped off. Even if it was a shitty transfer, it just, there was a period where you, you felt like this is on a disc and this is, I, I feel like I really have something now, you know? Yeah. We could do a whole episode on it. I think that would be a great episode to do. Just analyzing the DVD era. Oh, yeah. All right, guys. I think that about wraps it up. That was a fun one, man. I liked uh, exploring 77. We'll do more year ones in the future. Any uh, closing thoughts, John D'Amico? Something to tell us, tell the listeners? Yeah, I mean, the beauty of this is we're bound to have skipped like a bajillion of your favorite movies from the year. Yeah, if you have like, some favorites, fucking yeah. send them our way. I mean, we we barely scratched the surface, I'm sure. I'm sure there's a lot of foreign stuff, maybe some Japanese stuff we're just not thinking of. And Yeah, I mean, we didn't, we didn't touch a single Russian movie and there was so much going on in Soviet cinema at the time and just Latin American cinema was popping off. And Yeah, if you've got favorites. I mean, we, we gave Killer of Sheep like a sentence and really we could have done a whole episode of that Killer of Sheep, movie. absolutely, yeah. So if you have favorites, just leave them in the comments or just send them to us on Facebook. Uh, and Jenna, any closing words? I'm just going to do the, the closing theme for you so you can Please just talk do. your credits over it. Please do, I'll, I'll talk over it. Eastbound or down, rolling up and trekking. All right, thank you We're guys. We're gonna do what they say can't be done. Thank you, everybody. We got a long thank way you for to listening go and, and a uh, short time to sure get to there. I'm eastbound rate, and comment, watch old bandit subscribe. run. Subscribe. Very good, very good rendition. Smokey and the bandit people, watch it, enjoy it. See you around.